For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. Apparently, there is to be no introduction. <laughs> so, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this afternoon's session. I must apologize in advance that the air conditioning in North America is beginning to attack my vocal cords. And so if it is a sudden and permanent silence, you'll know exactly what's happened. And I will leave you to meditate in silence <coughs> for the rest of the afternoon. It's a great pleasure to be with you all and to see so many of you doubting Thomases assembled to hear me speak on the topic of doubt. The great philosopher Aristotle once said that philosophy is the art of doubting well. <clears throat> and in the Middle Ages, doubt was a method of establishing truth. And among the scholastics, the proof of a proposition or thesis began by a statement of doubts or contrary arguments, after which the evidence for the thesis was given, and finally the doubts are resolved. And this method was used by the famous Thomas Aquinas in his Summa Theologica, and it's still in use among many students to resolve not only theological doubts, but doubts in many other fields. In other words, the way you test a truth of a proposition is to see how it withstands counter-argument. And all of us use that approach all the time. Now the reason I start with that is because the word doubt in many people's minds is like a black monster. Winston Churchill once described his doubts and his depression as the black dog. And it's very easy to think that the word doubt only applies to those feelings that we get from time to time where we think the whole universe is collapsing and we can see no light on the horizon. That's a very extreme form of doubt. And what I wish to investigate with you this afternoon is a whole variety of aspects of the concept and the way in which it occurs in the Bible. In order to help you to see that there are many positive sides as well as negative sides to this concept. Now I'm a mathematician as some of you know and if you put mathematics, theology and doubt all together you end up with René Descartes and his discourse on method. The method of doubt. You will probably recall that Descartes, the one thing he could not doubt was that he was thinking. Man is a thinking thing. And <clears throat> his method of establishing truth was to get rid of all prejudice by doubting all that can be doubted. How do I know that my senses aren't deceiving me? How do I know that all external objects are not delusive dreams? And you remember he came up with the famous Latin expression, cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. He couldn't doubt that he was a thinking being. The irony of that all was that he wished by this methodology to provide a firm foundation for faith in God. But it turned out to be a two-edged sword because it contradicted concentrated attention on the subject, I, I think, therefore I am, rather than on the object, God. But you'd be relieved to know today is not the day to give you a lecture on René Descartes, either on his philosophy or his mathematics. So let's come up to our contemporary world. It's always useful, you know, to start with a, an ordinary dictionary, in my case, of course, the Oxford English Dictionary. <laughs> and there, doubt is defined to be wavering, uncertain, or undecided in belief. 
originally with an element of fear or apprehension. And related to it is the concept of perplexity, thinking that has become intricate, involved, entangled, entwined, and hence leading to bewilderment. So the doubt is the opposite of certainty. And language, of course, is fascinating, and I love languages, especially those other than my own. And in a number of them, doubt is expressed by means of wonderful idioms. So, for instance, to doubt can be expressed as having two thoughts, or to think only perhaps, or to believe only a little, or to question one's heart about faith in two minds, a position between belief and unbelief. And those expressions indicate to us clearly that doubt can have both an intellectual dimension and an emotional dimension or a mixture of both. Now it is obvious, isn't it, that doubt is a purely subjective condition. It pertains only to the mind that is judging a given situation. And there's a whole range of intensities, if you like, or situations that are covered by the term doubt. Firstly, simply being uncertain about something. Is there going to be a thunderstorm in Columbus later this afternoon? Then it can be uncertainty plus apprehension plus the beginnings of an undermining of faith. A loss of confidence that stems from two possible sources. Either A, that you begin to think that something you thought was true might just be false. Or you begin to think that something you thought was false might just be true. And you would cover that by the word doubt. And then there, of course, there is indecision which people experience that has emotional roots rather than intellectual roots. And we shall look at these. Now, in technical terminology, questions about doubt form part of the wider philosophical discipline of epistemology, which simply tries to answer questions of knowledge. How do I know what I know? Now, the word science originally meant knowledge, and in many languages it still does. In English, it tends to narrow itself down to the natural sciences. That is, like physics and chemistry and so on. But as they say, in languages other than English, it covers the whole range of disciplines, from natural sciences through history, languages, literature, and theology. And it's important to realize this, because failure to do so often leads to people thinking that scientific, in the English sense, and rational are coextensive. And that has led to the entirely erroneous notion in our contemporary Western Academy, espoused by many people, that science is the only way to knowledge. Now we have to face that in any discussion of doubt, because as you know, the inroads of atheism are such, they make themselves considerably felt, and they doubt everything. In fact, they regard it as untrue that is not revealed to them by the scientific method. That philosophy we call scientism. And Bertrand Russell once expressed it beautifully, although he didn't believe it himself completely, that what science cannot tell us, mankind cannot know. Now, Russell is an impressive logician and mathematician. But his logic failed him disastrously when he wrote that sentence. So we'll try a little logic. This is a very bad time of the afternoon to do logic, you know, ladies and gentlemen. But let's just try. So let's take the statement, what science cannot tell us, mankind cannot know. Is that a statement of science? No, it isn't. So you cannot know it. So if it is true, it's false. Have you got that? Or is it really too difficult at this time of the afternoon? And it's what we call logically incoherent. In other words, scientism overreaches itself. 
It's telling you that you must doubt, and in fact regard as essentially false, everything that is not proved to you by science. But it goes too far. Now, Peter Medawar, one of my intellectual heroes, a Nobel Prize winner, has said it's so easy that science uh, <clears throat> doesn't tell you everything because it is incapable of answering the simple questions of a child. Where do I come from? Where am I going to? What's the meaning of life? And he pointed out that you have to turn to other disciplines and other sources for answers to that question. So although I'm a passionate scientist, and I'll be talking a bit more about science tomorrow morning in the plenary, if you can possibly stand that, um, <clears throat> I am very aware of the limitations of science and the importance of that. Because science is not the only way to knowledge, and therefore we can have certainties about things other than those things that science revealed to us. But the next thing to query is, and I'll not be able to do this tomorrow, is how certain is science itself? You see, science moves all the time, and it advances, and it changes. We have a very different world picture than Aristotle had. Aristotle believed the earth was fixed and motionless while everything else moved around it. Now we believe that everything is in motion. The earth and the planets circling the sun, the sun moving around the galaxy and the galaxies moving as well. So there's been a very big change. And that change happened stepwise. And what most people in my position believe, they would call themselves critical realists. Now, what does that mean? It means that science approaches a truth that really is out there. Scientists are not in general postmodern in their science. I've got a friend in Germany who's a leading apologist, and he says with his tongue slightly in his cheek, that people are usually only postmodern in areas that they regard as unimportant. You will never get people relativist with regard to what's in their bank account. And that's a simple observation, but it's worth making. <clears throat> All of us behave as if there is objective truth. I'm reminded, if you like a little story, uh, in my college at Oxford, we meet all kinds of fascinating people. And I was once sitting at lunch with an author, and he indicated that to me by the fact that he had prominently displayed on the table his own book. <laughs> so I asked him, what was this book about? Oh, he says, this book is a very interesting book. Its thesis is that there is no such thing as authorial intention. I see there are some bright sparks among us. <clears throat> so I said, I said, now that sounds fascinating to me. You mean if I read your book, I will understand that there's no such thing as authorial intention. That is, you cannot read an author's intention and meaning from his book. He says exactly right. Well, I said, I'm not going to read it then. <laughs> And he says, why not? Well, I said, if you're right, then there's no point in reading it. He got very angry and got up and walked out. <laughs> it had never occurred to him. Now, this is a little test for you. You see, people that espouse relativism almost always exclude themselves from the equation. That's the test. You know, the person that comes along to you and announces with great authority, there is no such thing as absolute truth. That person is expecting you to take that as the one absolute truth, you see. And that kind of analysis of postmodern relativism has led to the demise of postmodernism in many of our faculties and in France. Some Christians haven't quite caught up with it. But it is important to realize, ladies and gentlemen, that in the contemporary debate about atheism, these people are not postmodern at all. They believe that there is truth out there and God is not part of it. But it means that we can debate with them and discuss with them in a way that we couldn't with their uh, more distant um, relativistic friends. And incidentally, just saying that, 
The term postmodern is extremely unfortunate because it gives people the impression that you had a period that was pre-modern and then modern and postmodern, and it went in beautiful historical sequence. That's actually nonsense, although I know what they mean. In the ancient world, in the Greek world, you had everything at the same time. The ancient Greek skeptics were as postmodern as the people today, and you had people who believed in absolute truth that was guaranteed by God, people that believed it was there but guaranteed by reason, and others who believed it didn't exist. That has been true throughout all of history. And if we get the impression that it's all of one sort at given periods in history, we're going to make a serious mistake. The point is we've got everything still. The emphases change. And of course we've known since the 60s a tremendously powerful wave of relativism against which there is at least a certain backlash to be seen. Well, now back to science. How does it work? It tries to get at the truth about the natural world by observation, by experiment, and it's very difficult to define science. Most of the fundamental things, people have given up, really, the idea that you could define science. We're much more modest now. We associate certain activities with science. And to cut a long story short, thinking of the shift, say, from Aristotle to the current day, we would believe that Galileo got it better than Aristotle got. And Kepler improved on that, and Newton improved on that, and Einstein improved on that. But none of them, we would claim, had got the whole truth. So science, by its very nature, does not deliver you with 100% certainty. It gives increasing approximations to what we believe to be the truth. Otherwise, of course, you wouldn't do it. That's important. We wouldn't do it if we didn't believe there was a truth to be obtained. <clears throat> Mathematics is the only area where you get proof in the rigorous sense. Now, when we're talking about doubt, we need to talk about proof, evidence, and all the rest of it. And we need to clear up a difficulty that is created by the fact that the word proof has two meanings in the English language. It's got a formal meaning, which only applies in my field of pure mathematics. You get it nowhere else, where you can have that 100% certainty. That is, starting with these axioms, using that logic, you reach these conclusions. And they are inexorable. But you don't get that anywhere else. You don't get it in the natural sciences. There it's much better to talk about evidence, about pointers, about the weight of argument, about argument beyond reasonable doubt. Now, having said that, it is very important to realize that that is not a weak statement. I cannot prove to you mathematically that my wife loves me. I cannot say e to the i pi take the square root of the logarithm of minus 273 and a quarter, therefore Sally loves me. No, it doesn't work like that, <laughs> you see. But I'd stake my life on it, because I believe there's sufficient evidence of, what, 45 years marriage to show that she does. And there are many things in life like that, so we mustn't be afraid of the fact that although we cannot have a 100% rigorous certainty in the mathematical sense, you get that nowhere except mathematics. We can have enough evidence to put the weight of our lives on it. And of course I stand here convinced that that is true of the Christian faith. There's enough evidence for us to put our lives on it, which is just as well, because that is precisely what Christ expects of us. So. Let's admire science, if we're like me, a scientist, but let's keep it in its place and not make these two mistakes. One, that science is the only way to knowledge and truth. I mean, after all, that is so silly. There are professors in Oxford, and I shouldn't name Richard Dawkins, but um, <laughs> who believe precisely that. And yet, he surely knows that if science is the only way to truth, you'd have to close half the faculties in the university. Of course you would. History, languages, literature, all of that is absurd. So we must get away from this idea and connected with it. I mentioned it briefly, but let me highlight it because it's so important. Going along with scientism is the idea that only the scientific is rational.
that that is a very serious error. History, thinking of intellectual disciplines, history and theology and, uh, <coughs> and um, languages and so on, literature, are highly rational disciplines. Every bit as rational as science. But unfortunately, some people have been very successful in getting people to think that science is the only way to truth. Now, I have to say all of those things because science has got such cultural authority in the modern Western world that it's now being used by some very bright minds to attempt to eradicate religion and to force you to get your Christianity under your hat and to keep it utterly private. So this is serious stuff, ladies and gentlemen. Very serious stuff. And it's part of the whole debate. Because at the big level, the naturalistic worldview wants you to doubt the truth of the Christian worldview to the extent that you regard it as meaningless, irrelevant, and false. That's the pressure you're under. So this topic of doubt is not to be confined for a moment to Joe Christian, who's having a little bit of trouble being sure of his salvation or not, although that is very important as well. And I understand people that feel like that very well. But it's a big issue because it's a battle for your mind and heart and what you're committed to. And anything that can be done to shake your confidence in God is going to be done. That's why this conference is entitled Confidence in God. So, the new atheists contrast the, what they call the evidence-based scientific approach that's giving us truth, at least as near as we can get it, to what they decry as the pathetic approach of the Christian. That is faith. Wow. What an awful thing faith is. And they meet me and they think uh, Professor Lennox is a man of faith. That is not a compliment, it's an insult. Because their definition of faith, and here is where they've been so successful, their definition of faith is believing where there's no evidence. And they have managed to capture the market in convincing many young people that faith is a religious word and it means believing where there's no evidence. Both of those are seriously false. Believing where there is no evidence, ladies and gentlemen, is what most people would call blind faith. And it is exceedingly dangerous. But faith in the biblical sense is not that. It is a commitment based on evidence. And we need to get that clear. Very clear. Because unfortunately many Christians, unaware of where the battle is have compromised on this. And you can see it in the kind of lectures they invite me to give. They say, well, will you give a talk on science and faith? I say, faith in what? I'll give a talk on science and faith in science that won't even mention God. Is that what you want? They don't realize, you see, that faith is essential to science. They have already begun to confine it to the religious realm. But you know better than that, don't you? Because you've suffered the financial crisis. We thought we could have faith in the bankers, didn't we? And then we discovered that there wasn't enough evidence for it. And what happened? The markets froze. And it's taking a long time to get the confidence back, isn't it? To get the evidence on which trust can be based. We understand that perfectly. I don't know anybody in the West, at least, who doesn't understand what evidence-based faith means. That is what the Bible is talking about. And John makes it clear, the end of his gospel. Many other signs Jesus did in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written in order that you might believe. Here's the evidence, and your faith is based on it. That is what Christianity stands for. Now, having faith in God based on evidence doesn't mean you know everything. When I first asked the lady who is still my wife to marry me, I didn't know everything about her, and she didn't know everything about me. It's usually that way. But there was enough evidence to trust her. Do you see the point I'm making? 
And of course the evidence grows even after you're married. The trust deepens and so on. And that's the analogy the Bible uses, so that's why I'm using it. Let's try as hard as we can to get across the message that faith, A, is an everyday word. It comes from the Latin fides, which means trust and loyalty. It's the kind of thing that the bank official wants to have in you when you come and ask him for a loan to build your garage or buy your Harley Davidson. Now you understand that all right, do you? Good. You see? We all understand it perfectly. And we need to get that across. We need also, as you'll see tomorrow, to realize that faith is essential to science. And I'll mention that then. Now, <clears throat> let me just say, some of you have heard this before, but it is very important, that some of the new atheists are currently suggesting that Jesus wants us to have faith without evidence. Now this is such a distortion that it's worth pinning this down. And he refers to doubting Thomas. Now Thomas didn't believe that the others had seen Jesus and you know what he said. He said to them, unless I see and put my fingers and so on, I will not believe. And Jesus appeared then and <coughs> Thomas fell at his feet and said, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Because you've seen, you have believed. Blessed rather those who have not seen and have believed. And A.C. Grayling, brilliant philosopher that he is supposed to be, says, There you are. Jesus says, Believe without evidence. Can he not read? Jesus says, No such thing. Jesus says, Because you have seen you have believed. Blessed are those that have had no evidence and yet believed. No. Blessed are those that have not seen. Seeing is only one small part of evidence. Think of yourselves in this room. Not one of us have seen Jesus like Thomas did. Does that mean you believe on the basis of no evidence? I hope not. There's endless evidence. And the irony of this fact, and I meant it when I said, can the philosopher not read? For the very next statement in John's Gospel says, many other signs did Jesus, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you might believe. Here's the evidence. It's not visual evidence. It's evidence of a different kind. And this just underlines the lesson that when we meet objections like this, go and see exactly what Scripture says, because the answer usually is there. And it establishes in our own hearts and in the minds of those that listen to us a higher authority for Scripture. Now, there are all sorts of funny things said about doubt and faith. <clears throat> Some people say that when we get to heaven, faith will give way to sight. Have you heard that expression? I'm sure you have. Is that right? I'm now in North America, as you see. My wife is in Oxford. I trust her when I'm here. So when I get home, faith gives way to sight and I don't need to trust her anymore. That's absolute nonsense, of course. <laughs> the relationship of trust between us and God is an eternal relationship. When the disciples could see Jesus, they were still in the throes of coming to trust him. And these little trite phrases we need to analyze because sometimes they're simply false. And they are highly misleading. Faith is very relevant even when we see people. Now... <clears throat> Let's keep the faith in science until tomorrow and just make the point that we should now begin to look at some of the wonderful terminology that's used in the Bible to describe doubt. And I'm just going to go through them. You can study them later at your leisure. But there's some wonderful ones. This one, meteorizo, meteorizo, from which we get meteor, meteorite, meteorology, to do with the weather. And what it means is to be in mid-air. What a wonderful description of doubt. Do you ever feel you're in mid-air? 
And our Lord uses it in connection with people who are over-concerned with what they shall eat or drink. But the implication of putting too much value on some things and being in mid-air about them. And then there's another one, Suchen Airo, to raise the breath, to hold in suspense. How long? The disciples said to Jesus in John 10, 24, will you raise our expectations without satisfying them? Now, faith is a dynamic concept. And you realize uh, at this stage that doubt has got that questioning element which is undermining its opposite, which is the trusting element, which is conveyed by the word faith. <clears throat> and we need to remember in all of this that God is not a theory. He's a person. That's why the analogy of man and wife fits so well with thinking about our relationship with the Lord because he is a person. And faith being a dynamic concept needs to be built up at several different levels. One, in terms of knowing God's word. And secondly, in terms of knowing God. Those aren't quite the same thing. And if I might just say, ladies and gentlemen, it's worth asking ourselves the question, why do you study scripture? The answer should be to get to know God, but more often than not, it's to get to produce a talk for somebody else. If we lose that sense of that objective in studying Scripture, of getting to know God, we begin to lose everything. But I'm going to leave that now because that is so important, I'm going to deal with it in part in a plenary. The wonderful thing when it comes to the question of certainty is that God wants us to be certain. You see, when people say to me, it's arrogant to be certain of anything, particularly when it comes to your relationship with God, I say half a minute. If God explicitly wants me to be certain, it's arrogant to say it's not possible. And it's good to just go to that wonderful statement <coughs> in uh, 1 John. And he writes the very book that you might be certain, that you might know God is interested in our certainty and in our knowledge. And that certainty is given away by a subtlety. Have you ever noticed the distinction in the Gospels when between something like Jesus is Lord, that statement, and I believe Jesus is Lord. They're different statements, aren't they? Which is the stronger of the two? Jesus is Lord or I believe Jesus is Lord? The first, isn't it? Because oddly enough, the word believe can put a slight distance if I say to you, Jesus is Lord, you know very well that I believe it. But if I say I believe it, that opens up the possibility and you may not believe it and it doesn't really matter. And that's the expression and the impression many people get, isn't it? Although we don't mean them to get that. And you will discover, try it yourself. The next time you're tempted to say, I believe Jesus is Lord, turn it to this and people will soon see you believe that Jesus is Lord. Now we have to be wise as serpents and all the rest of it. But that little subtle difference measures for me the level of certainty the men and women in the New Testament possessed. The basic Christian confession was what? Jesus is Lord. With no qualification. I think or I believe. Or even I know. No I in it at all. Because it's putting the I in it that at least in part subjectivizes it. And other people say, well, that's okay for you. And of course, in a generation strongly influenced by relativism, that's exactly what they do. They're quite happy for you to say, I believe. But not for you to objectify it and say, Jesus is Lord as a truth to be reckoned with out there. Now, of course, I say we have to be sensitive the way we use language in order to get things across to people. But I observe this 
phenomenon in the New Testament. Now, <clears throat> against that, <clears throat> we have some other words that express doubt. Aporeo. Poros means a way. So aporeo means not having a way. Not knowing where to go. And that expresses what we feel very often, doesn't it? I don't know where to go. I don't know where to turn. I'm embarrassed. I'm in doubt. I'm at perplexity. I'm at a loss. Now, if you don't have a way to go, often that kind of doubt is resolved by information. I don't know how to find Zenos Church. Well, here's a map. Thank you very much. And that solves the doubt. And there are a lot of things like that in life that are, where the doubt and the uncertainty is resolved by more information. Full stop. That's a perfectly natural situation. For example, John 13, 22. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. What sold that extra information when Jesus identified Judas? Acts 25, 20. Festus said, being at a loss how to investigate these questions. It's all the same word, not having a way. And Herod, in Mark 6.20, Herod feared John. When he heard him, he was perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. He wanted, apparently, at that stage to find a way. And even Paul, and this is very encouraging, isn't it? Because I sometimes meet people very troubled because they've been told by some pastor or other that Christians must never have any doubts. Wow. What sort of doubts? They must never be at a loss or undecided. That is absurd. Anybody that says that kind of thing has no understanding of the nature of human life. Listen to Paul. 2 Corinthians 4.8 Perplexed but not driven to despair. He didn't see the way. As a senior Christian whose evangelism resulted in you sitting here today and me speaking here today. He didn't know the way. That's encouraging, isn't it? We must get rid of this idea. People that think you never can have a doubt are usually people who are very weak in their faith, actually, and are afraid. The subject of fear will be treated on another occasion. So, Diaporeo is even stronger, to be thoroughly perplexed, tending towards despair. So, one of the ways in which the New Testament encourages us to dispel doubt in the sense of losing the way, being thoroughly perplexed, is to add to our faith knowledge. That is a New Testament injunction, isn't it? 2 Peter 1.5 Hebrews 5, 11, 12, where the writer says, By reason of the time you ought to have known this about Melchizedek and the high priesthood, but you don't. If you had the knowledge, you'd been saved for this awful pressure of beginning to doubt whether Jesus is the Messiah or not. And it was sheer lack of knowledge was one of their major problems. You see, faith is dynamic. If you are not building on the foundation, you're probably having it undermined. And one of the ways it gets undermined very fast is the two-stage education phenomenon. Where we grow in our profession like this. We get our degrees in engineering. We become business people. We know the stock market inside out. But our knowledge of God and his word remains at Sunday school level. And then we start to split apart because the moment we open our mouths to articulate our faith, people see the gap. And they make a comment, we can't answer them and we're silenced, often permanently. That's very serious, ladies and gentlemen. The very first commandment is to love the Lord your God with your mind. And if you're not giving your mind to God, we have different kinds of minds. But I find it very odd when I meet somebody who can remember every football score for the last 50 years and then says, keep it simple, dear brother. Oh, no. That's an insult to God, ladies and gentlemen. 
And it will find you out as surely as anything. We must learn to be serious within the level of ability God has given us. Some people have Mercedes-Benz brains. Other people have old clapped-out beetle brains. But that's okay. Whatever God has given, if we use it, that's absolutely fine. It's when we don't or only concentrate on one area. And you can test it, of course. I don't ask you to answer this question publicly, but you can test it. How much time we actually spend thinking about the Word of God is distinct from everything else. Television, the internet, and so on. You can answer that yourselves. So adding to our faith is enormously important. Now another word that's used for doubt is dubzo, to stand in two ways. Doubt is wavering faith, standing in two places, not quite sure where you are. And <clears throat> when Peter tried to walk on water against all the laws of physics he'd ever learned in school, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You remember? Oh, you of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? Why did you stand in two ways? And in Matthew 28, 17, I like this because of its honesty. And when they saw him, that is after resurrection, they worshipped him, but some stood in two ways. There was still that residual uncertainty. And one of the things that's so impressive about the Lord Jesus is he met people at the level of their uncertainty. Because its reverse, as I said before, is faith. So he was keen on building up their faith. So he met them at the point of their uncertainty. That's one of the things, the major things, that convinces me that Christianity is true. It deals with the big issues very profoundly and deeply and gives answers. You don't get them all at once. You get them as you grow. Then there is doubt that's had to do with the way your mind is functioning. I mean, most doubt has to. But there are words for it that concentrate on it, like dialogismos, dialogue. But that's doubt as reasoning and questioning yourself. You're questioning yourself. You're having attention within your own mind. Luke 24, 38, our Lord speaks to the two on the road to Emmaus. Why are you troubled? And why do doubts, that is, questionings, dialogues, arise in your heart? And the Lord answered it. And the story of the disciples on the road to Emmaus is a wonderful story on how the Lord settled this kind of doubt. They were disheartened, as you know. Their hope was shattered. They'd been told the tomb was empty. That hadn't registered with them. They even said to the stranger of, on the road who was Jesus, but they didn't recognize him, this is the third day since these things happened. It didn't even click. The third day, nothing, absolute nothing. So how did the Lord deal with that doubt? Well, he pointed out, first of all, without them knowing who he was, that what had happened had fulfilled scripture. And then he allowed them to recognize him in the way in which he broke the bread, something that they'd seen him do many times and which no imposter would ever thought of doing. And then they got the confirmation when they got back to Jerusalem from Simon Peter who'd met the Lord. And you know, <coughs> even after all of that, there was uncertainty. And when our Lord appeared in the room, and I love to imagine this, it's probably because I'm a scientist really, but... Have you ever thought of the Lord appearing in the room and they're all nervous and they're doubting and they're wondering and they're full of sheer wonder and they're torn in two minds and they think that he is a spirit. And he says to them, have you got anything to eat? So they said, here's a fish. So there's the fish. So Jesus eats the fish. And then Jesus disappears, they're left looking at an empty plate. I wonder what they thought. Where did the fish go, by the way? Where did it go? Well, that'll keep you awake tonight for hours, won't it? <laughs> this 
universe is much more complex than we think. Fascinating, isn't it? Just think about it. And they were left and it resolved the fact. The spirit, he had just said to them, has not flesh and bones as you see me have. And then there's another word which is used for criticize. That critical aspect of doubt, diacrino, from the word cri, cri ideas that suggest lack of faith, to think that something may not be true or certain, that you're judging it and you come to the conclusion that maybe just it might be wrong or it might be right and I thought otherwise. That is used when our Lord says, I say to you, whoever says this mountain be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. James uses it. 1.6, but let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. And I expect many of you will recognize that metaphor, especially in the middle of the night when you can't sleep and you're uncertain. You feel as if you're being tossed and driven by the wind. Now, I'm going to end by giving you some examples of doubt resolution in the New Testament. The first one is a very major issue. It's a reason why many people doubt the possibility that the Christian faith can be true because it involves the supernatural dimension. And the interesting thing about that is they say that New Testament writers were primitive, pre-scientific, and of course they could believe in miracles and supernatural, but we can't. Well, let's see what the case is. Luke is the only scientist that writes in the New Testament, a medical doctor. At least he probably had a very good education at Alexandria in Egypt. And he, uniquely in the New Testament, gives us two stories of miraculous conceptions and not just one. The story of John the Baptist and the story of Jesus himself. And you remember Zacharias the priest in the temple. So he was praying. So he believed in prayer, I presume. It was the high point of his career as priest because he wasn't the high priest. He was an ordinary priest. And normally there were so many of them that they only got the chance very rarely, perhaps only once in a lifetime, to lead the prayers of the nation. So here was a theologically trained man who believed in prayer. And an angel appeared, so he had a chat with an angel, so presumably he believed in angels too. So he believed in God, he believed in prayer, he believed in angels, and the angel said, you're going to have a child, and he said, no, I'm not. Why was that? Because he was pre-scientific and pre-modern? No. Because he knew, like any gynecologist will tell you today, that you reach a certain age and you can't produce children. Mercifully, some of us think, by the way. But <laughs> it is true. And he knew that. He knew it as well as anybody did today, so he said no. Now, this is very interesting. You see, he wasn't an atheist. He was a believer in God, believed in angels, believed in prayer. And yet he did not believe that God could do a physical miracle. That shows that Luke was up against the very same thing that we're up against. I ought to give you a bit of confidence in Luke. And he was struck dumb for being silly. He wasn't able to speak, remember, until the child was born. He came out of the temple and he couldn't say a word. I could preach you a sermon on that, by the way. If you, if you don't believe that God can put the physical clock back, you won't believe he can put the spiritual clock back and therefore you've nothing to say. And he had nothing to say. But the answer came when the child was born and his speech was loosed and so on. His difficulty was scientific. He doubted because he knew the laws of nature. When Mary was told that she was going to have a child, she questioned it too, but not because of science, but because of morality. How shall these things be since I do not know a man? She wasn't struck dumb for that question, was she? Of course not. That doubt in that sense, that question was utterly natural. And God gave her an overwhelming answer. The Holy Spirit. Mary, this is utterly holy. And Joseph, 
Mary tells them the story, and what does he do? Say, well, of course, my dear. No! He knew exactly where babies came from, did Joseph. <laughs> and so he wanted to divorce her privately. That's because he knew the laws of nature. And it took enormous pressure from God in a special revelation to the man to have the guts to take her to be his wife and risk what he got, the public signature for many years, probably. You see, this is brilliant stuff. This is Luke going to the very heart of the modernist doubt, of the new atheist doubt. It's analyzing the problem. And it's as up-to-date as if it had been written last week. It gives me confidence in Scripture. Luke anticipated this by putting it first. Because it was as big a problem then as it is now. You'll see that from the book of Acts. Where did the first opposition to Christianity come from? Atheists? No. It came from highly religious people called Sadducees who denied the supernatural. Isn't that interesting? The first part of Luke's gospel, the very start, is the issue of the supernatural. The first part of Acts is the same thing. Do we begin to get a little message? I hope we do. But it would take a long time to deal with it in detail. And incidentally, what Luke is doing is answering the objections that David Hume put up, the Scottish Enlightenment philosopher, the objections that have caused many people, including Christopher Hitchens, who told me it himself. He challenged me with it publicly, as you'll see if you watch, and Richard Dawkins. Luke is answering those questions. The answer to Hume is in Scripture. Not simply in our capacity to do logical analysis, it's actually very much in Scripture. Because it was Hume that said they were pre-scientific and primitive, and so on and so forth. So that's one thing. And it's very encouraging to see that <clears throat> way in which God dealt with their doubts, but the different nature of them. Zacharias wasn't justifiable, and he was struck dumb. Mary's was perfectly understandable, and so she was not struck down. Let's come to another one briefly. Resolution about, of doubt about the love of God. Now this is a massive topic. Who of us has never sat quietly and wondered if God really loved us? If there really is a God, couldn't he have given me better circumstances? Couldn't he have given me a better job? Couldn't he have given me a better mind? Couldn't he have given me more talents? Couldn't he have made me a less awkward person? Couldn't he have done this? And it, the list goes on forever. Does God really love me? That's a very big question, isn't it? And we need to face it. It's faced in the New Testament. There was a little family. It wasn't a complete family because it was two sisters and a brother. Lazarus and Martha and Mary. Do you remember that story? And Lazarus got sick and Jesus was a long way away. And the sisters sent a message. Lord, and they didn't say Lazarus is ill. They said the one you love is ill. It's about love. And Jesus let him die. That brought them near the breaking point of doubt, didn't it? And eventually Jesus went up. And the sisters, in their different ways, <coughs> one of them, tough, argued the case out. Your brother will rise again. Yes, I know he will, Lord, at the last day, but if you'd been here... And Mary weeping. How do you resolve it? Because the fact is, Jesus let the man die. He might let you die one day. He'll certainly let me die one day. If he doesn't come. And he let some of your relatives die, and your loved ones. And he let them be affected with diseases that frighten us to death. And the big question comes up. Oh, this is doubt, isn't it? You understand it. And the disciples, 
When the Lord said, let us go into Judea again, they said, you're crazy. This is committing suicide. The last time we were up there, they were seeking to stone you. And if you go there again, we've had it. And he says, I'm going. They said, okay. And it was Thomas. Do you remember what he said? Grim and glum. Let us go that we might die with him. They thought they were walking into death. But if they'd stayed where they were, in the safety, they thought, of Galilee, they would have never realized that he could raise the dead. That's a very deep thing, isn't it? Because although he raised Lazarus on that occasion and resolved their doubt in a magnificent way, it doesn't always happen, does it? But the fact that it did opens a window up into a potential that, of course, as Christians, we believe for the future. That what God did once then, he can do again on a very large scale. That's only part of the big question. And it comes to this in so many different areas. Life is rugged, it's jagged, it's like barbed wire sometimes, and it's beautiful at other times. And why is it like that? Couldn't God have made it some other way? Well, of course he could. But then there would have been no humans in the world. Because... God could have made us all robots and I would not be interested in a robotic wife, not for one minute. Even if she was pre-programmed with a big iPad so that you came home and saw a button marked kiss and you pressed that and you got a, a robotic kiss. No relationship, no love is possible if there's not freedom. So God took a risk. So the question is not what should God, would God, could God, might God have done. You'll never resolve it that way. I think there's another question we can ask, and that is, granted that life has got these edges that cause us to doubt, is there any evidence anywhere that we can trust God with that? And the answer is resoundingly yes, and it's called the cross. Yes? Yes. Well, <clears throat> there's lots more about doubt. One practical thing, or two, Firstly, doubt can be caused by your physical state and have nothing to do with your spiritual state. Think of the prophet Elijah. He just conquered the prophets of Baal. Do you remember that? And then he got scared stiff of Jezebel. She must really have been something, this Jezebel. And he ran and he ran and he ran. Colossal distance. And he sat down under a tree and said, I am worse than my father's. I only I am left. I'm ready to die. And he got suicidal. And why was that? Because he was unspiritual. No, he just challenged the prophets of Baal and brought fire down from heaven. Because he was exhausted, that's why. And God applied the remedy. An angel appeared and didn't ask him about his quiet time, but gave him some food and water and told him to go to sleep. <laughs> And some of you need precisely that, don't you, if you're honest? If we do not get rest, ladies and gentlemen, we'll start to think funny things about ourselves and other people. And we need to realize that. We can disorientate the mechanisms that are normally fairly balanced simply by getting exhausted. And the Bible warns us about that. And we need to take it seriously through incidents like this. My final point, because I want to give you a minute or two for questions, is this. Doubt often appears as a huge giant on the horizon of life. And it may be what other people would call a very simple issue. And yet it so grows on our, our horizon that we can see nothing else. Do you recognize that phenomenon? And I was given very good advice many years ago to resist that. And don't stop your inability to make progress in one area from making progress in many other areas. There are some things that take a while to resolve, <clears throat> even after we get converted. We've got 
complicated personalities that go very deep. And the Lord will work on them and it could be painful. But I find it so helpful. Never allow the giant to cloud your whole horizon. This is exactly what happened in the Old Testament. The, the spies that got them not to go to the land were totally preoccupied with these giants. Keep them in their place and realize humbly before the Lord, well, maybe this is something I can't solve today, but there are other places where I can make real progress. And those other areas often build up your spiritual strength so eventually you're able to slay the giant, so to speak, and make progress in that area as well. There's a great deal more to say, but I'm not going to say it. Thank you very much. <laughs> now, I have an idiosyncratic way of dealing with questions, <clears throat> but I love it. And that is, I'm going to collect two or three questions before I answer any so that you see what people are thinking about, because everybody wants to know what other people's questions are. So just put your hand up. We've only time for two or three. One. Uh, my question was, you mentioned earlier how uh, it's kind of disturbing that we know so much about so many of the things. For example, somebody can quote all the stories of all the yes. <coughs> Okay, yep. Okay, number two. <clears throat> number two. I don't believe this. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, three. Yes? What do you do when doubts are emotional <clears throat> and not intellectual? Okay, we'll have to leave it at that. Um, off we go. How do we know when we have made progress, really? Well, the way we don't know is by constantly asking the question how we know. <laughs> That's like we plant a plant and we pluck it up every day to see if the roots are growing. <laughs> and many people do that with their own personalities and character. C.S. Lewis was a very practical man, and as some of you know, I'm old enough to have heard him lecture. And uh, he's influenced me greatly, but he used to say, if you want to know what it means, say, to love somebody else, act as if you did and see what happens. Very practical. And I think the, the main message of this is, we will never know. It's like everything else. How do I know, or how do you know, that you love your wife enough or care for her enough. How do you know that? You spend your whole time saying, do I love her enough? No, you get on with actually doing it. And it's that outward. The trouble is that this kind of issue which can trouble us is subjective within our own mind. When the way to resolve it is to get your mind on the objective. Have you ever met a young man who's wanting to propose to a girl? How do I know I love her? You know this kind of stuff? And he comes moaning to me about how do I know and I feel in my head and I'm not very sure. And I say, tell me about her. And he now totally changes and says, you know, she is the most wonderful girl and so on. And by the time we finish talking, she thinks she's brilliant. While he's thinking about his own emotions, he falls to pieces. While he's thinking about her objectively, his confidence in her grows. It's exactly the same thing. We've become a generation who studies our own emotions. And we express that often in our worship songs. They are narcissistic. They describe our feelings. And many of them, not all of them, thankfully, 
but many of them are not expressing worship to God at all. They're describing our feelings. I really want to worship you. What is that? That isn't worship. That's simply describing what you think you want. But don't get me onto that. And I'm not against music. My niece, incidentally, my niece is Kristen Getty. And I introduced her to her husband, Keith Getty. And you know what they've done for music. So don't think I'm against music. Um, <clears throat> now, um, <clears throat> what do you do when your doubts are emotional and not intellectual? Well, it depends what kind of emotions they are. If they're emotional stress, you want to do practical things to reveal that stress. If they've produced a headache, you take an aspirin to start with. And be practical about it. Dr. Luke, you know, was around with Paul, and I bet you Paul got a headache or two. And he would help him medically. Now, sometimes, of course, we do need serious medical help and psychiatric help. There's nothing wrong with doing that. If I break my arm, you don't blame me for going to a doctor. If I have a nervous breakdown, you shouldn't blame me for going to a good psychiatrist to help me in that. And so it depends entirely on what the nature of the emotional thing is. It may mean I need some counseling. It may mean I need to sort things out with a relative or within the family. It could mean many, many different things. And finally, how do I deal with my Christian faith in a non-Christian setting in Oxford? The same as I deal with it everywhere else. And that is, I try to live authentically. I try, A, not to pretend to be what I'm not. And I try not to pretend not to be what I am. And it's very easy to fall into that, isn't it? And I think behind this question, there's a very important thing about witnessing in society, and it's affected by political correctness and many other things that we'd need to spend a lot of time unpacking. But what I often say to people is, witness to your peers to start with and those younger than you. It's very difficult for people older than you to believe that you've got something that they don't know. So start simply, start modestly. I'm going to be talking very practically tomorrow night about this. And I would encourage you to do that. Our Lord told us to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But there is no idea in the New Testament of living in a one-way street. We receive all the blessings and we don't witness. It's part of our Christian calling to be salt and light in our society. How we do that, there are no fixed set of rules how to do it. It stems from relationship. And if we are, as best we can, keeping close to the <coughs> Lord, reading his word, and bringing these things to him, he will give us opportunities. Of course he will. He's more interested in spreading Christianity than you are, you know, or I am. And the wonderful thing is he can use any of us and all our weaknesses, messengers, if we're willing. But we get scared. And because we get scared, I'm going to deal with being scared tomorrow night. So with that, I leave you. Thank you. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.